Thank you for listening to this talk produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. Hello, welcome everybody. Firstly, thank you very, very much for your patience. As you will appreciate with all of the crowds, we need to keep everybody safe. And what a great problem for us to have uh, with so much interest in this exhibition. My name is Tracy Locke and I am the curator of uh, the the Australian Art Collection here at the Art Gallery of South Australia. And I'm also the curator of this exhibition, Clarice Beckett, The Present Moment. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very, very much for that. And today I'm sitting, I had in my mind's eye, I would give this talk in the morning room. However, due to uh, numbers and so forth, here I am sitting in front of our faux uh, window, which is kind of fitting anyway. So, um, welcome and thank you so much for all coming in. I think this talk was promoted to be a, a sort of closing remarks talk and it, and it will be to a degree, but I wasn't... Closing remarks sounds very official. Um, and this talk won't be official at all. It'll be very informal and more a, a flow, uh, a series of sort of thought bubbles of my own uh, about the exhibition. Uh, there has been a lot of interest about the exhibition design and curiosity about that, so I'll, I'll give you some information about my thoughts there. Also, of course, some of the information that has, further information that has come to light as a result of the exhibition, but also I'll touch a little bit on uh, some of the critical responses to the exhibition. Um, so if you can just bear with me, it's going to be, as I say, a bit of a freewheeling a, a, a chat. But first of all, I would like to say, who on earth would have thought a little known 20th century woman artist by the name of Clarice Beckett would put the Art Gallery of South Australia back on the national cultural map. <laughs> very, very exciting. Um, I, I'm going to go out there with this statement. I, was, uh, I know, uh, oh, here she comes, our wonderful director is coming down the stairs. Based on our ticket numbers and the critical responses in print and both digital media, I'm going to make the statement that I believe this is the single most successful 20th century Australian art exhibition ever staged by the gallery. Uh, which is astonishing, but then we all go, well, what, why, how, how did that all happen? And of course, many of you will know the exhibition has been extended by one week, so now closing on Sunday, the 23rd of May. So if your friends here and family here or interstate, um, please let them know it, it will be open for the extra week. I think it's become important for me to sort of maybe for some satisfaction of mine, I don't know what it is, but to remind people that this whole exhibition, the book, everything, was developed in the time of a major pandemic hitting. 
um, the whole exhibition came about like the discovery of 2,000 paintings in a shed. It came about by chance, by accident. And if the pandemic hadn't been hitting the world, this opportunity would not have been open to this. So it's one of the great things, the positive outcomes of sometimes out of what can be absolutely terrible things. So further to that point, the exhibition and the whole project was developed pretty much in isolation. It was really evolved and grew uh, like as though it was as though I was working in a little cocoon. And then when it was installed, and suddenly I felt like I was still putting up the labels on the walls, was suddenly in the media preview. Uh, and it was like the flight of a butterfly. You know, this whole project was really resting in my own mind for so long and mostly working at home, sometimes in my home office, which is fairly improvised, or on the kitchen bench, on the laptop. So I, I keep having, you can imagine the responses from people, people saying to me, how do you feel, how do you feel, how do you feel? I mean, it's humbling, it's thrilling, but it's also like an out-of-body experience for me because everything about this show was so much in the cocoon. Um, so I'll now move on to say, when I, I take you back to that moment where it was like the flight of the butterfly, we had the Adelaide Festival directors were part of the media launch and um, they walked up to the microphone uh, in front of all of the media and, uh, and um, the first comment was, because you never know what these uh, festival directors are going to say, and the first uh, Rachel said, she stood at the microphone and she said, this is the most beautiful exhibition I have ever seen. <laughs> and it kind of went from there and then, um, uh, the wonderful uh, fellow director, Neil Armfield, um, he spoke and he said, he kept talking about the ex exquisite scenography of the exhibition. And again, I, I can assure you, I've literally just put the labels up and it's just opened and he's talking about the exquisite scenography. And I'm, in my mind, I'm going, oh, I don't know what that is. <laughs> I don't know what that is. But he was referring to the sense of the journey and the almost cinematic effect of the design and the experience of going through. And, and from him making that statement, people time and time again have referred to that experience. So what I would also, what is very, very important for, uh, I feel, for the public to be aware of, that firstly, exhibitions like this, really uh, the whole exhibition rests on the scholarship, 50 years of scholarship of Rosalind Hollenrake. So it's, it, while it feels for me it happened overnight, it's embodied with years and years of research. So I'm, I give thanks once again to Ros for her support in the staging of this exhibition. Um, we had many Zoom uh, meetings in our dressing gowns. Uh, of course, Ros is based in Melbourne. Melbourne was in heavy, heavy lockdown. And it was a really hideous time, especially for someone who's 83 and living alone 
It was a tough time, but she gave me her time, and I'm grateful for that. This exhibition also rests on the incredible private support of Alastair Hunter. If it had not been for his trust in me in 2019, if we think about it, go back pre-pandemic, I um, had the task to find something special for the Australian art collection that he would acquire and gift to the gallery in memory of his mother, Elizabeth. One thing led to another and he, uh, I put to him the idea that we had the opportunity to secure Ros Hollenrake's whole private collection of Clarice Beckett paintings. She'd always promised me that the Art Gallery of South Australia would have first right of refusal when she got to the point in her life that she was ready to part with that collection. So I spoke with Alastair and he understood the significance of, of Clarice Beckett, the story and the, the kind of transformative effect that addition of 21 paintings would have on the collection. He understood all of that, he stepped forward and he, he supported that donation. Now, without the impetus of that donation, it may not, this exhibition may not have had enough inertia uh, or enough force to take place. So once again, I thank Ros, but I also wish to acknowledge and thank Alastair Hunter for his visionary donation to the collection. Just very briefly, I would also like to say and um, point out to, to the public that the book would not have happened without private support. And the wonderful Anne Fanstone was the first person to come forward and support me in the initiative of the book. And her support uh, was followed by Catherine Branson, Professor Anne Edwards, Andrew and Hiroko Gwinnett, the beautiful Fred, William, uh, Fred Williams' widow, the beautiful Lynn Williams, Darren McMillan, David and Pam McKee, and of course the Yenkins in Melbourne. So with, once again, Without the incredible support of these people, the Art Gallery of South Australia cannot publish. So we're grateful to all of those individuals and for having faith in the project. And now, to look a little and discuss a little bit for you the curatorial ideas behind this exhibition and the structure of the exhibition. So as you are well aware, normally we would stage an exhibition of a, a major artist, a monographic exhibition would follow a neat chronology. We would show the early works, take visitors through to the middle works and then the late works of that artist, perhaps expand in more depth in an area that was particularly powerful or fruitful for that artist. In uh, looking at Clar uh, Clarice Beckett's work, again, I have many flashbacks as I'm speaking to you. Um, I'm at home, I'm looking at, at tiny little images of Beckett's work and I'm thinking, well, actually, uh, Clarice Beckett was only active for 16 years. Many artists are active for 70, 80 years. So we had a tiny window to look at and across that window of 16 years, there's very little variation in her work. 
She was great at the beginning. She was great at the end. But what you will notice, what is noticeable is very nuanced, very subtle. If you look at the beautiful bridge painting on the stairwell um, landing here and compare it to the, the bridge painting next to the video in the rescue room, those two paintings are painted seven years apart. And pictorially, you can see a development in her work, but it's very subtle. But what was important to me is to uh, really point out to people that Clarice Beckett was very interested in really uh, responding to the sensory sensations of nature and capturing those sensations in shifting veils of light. And so the idea of time, the temporal, is very critical to knowing her work. So it occurred to me that it wouldn't it be great to stage and shape the exhibition to follow the course of one single day, starting with the moment of dawn and working through to the night pictures. So that's the kind of thinking behind that idea and of course I had the wonderful willingness of the support uh, support of the staff to, to follow that idea. So having said that, once again the parameters for the exhibition were changing. It's like great, I get to do the Clarice Beckett exhibition, that's exciting, great, it's going to be downstairs and then I was too afraid to ask uh, am I going to have the whole space downstairs or half the space? What will the space be? And I was very much the emu putting my head in the sand. I just didn't want to know. But it turned out that we would profile and platform the exhibition as part of the Adelaide Festival and then also ticket the exhibition uh, so people would be paying to see this show. And so there was pressure to create, not pressure, but an aspiration to create a truly wonderful experience for people who are going to pay their hard-earned money to come and see this exhibition. So the challenge for me was how do I carry people through? Her works are so teeny tiny. We're so used to hanging major sort of contemporary art exhibitions and so forth down here in big installations. Her works are precious and tiny. So that you'll find there are walls and spaces throughout the exhibition particularly positioned to hold you and then breathe out and then breathe in and pause and then move. So all designed with the idea of pulling you through all the way and along that journey having a couple of emotional touchstones. And those for me, of course, were the kitchen space and the shed. But firstly, what I, I will now refer to is perhaps talk um, in more detail about the portal, the doorways that you walk through, the curved doorways. Uh, I refer to them as, as portals and they were, uh, and people say, how do you come up with these ideas and, and so forth? Well, sometimes it's very hard to know because Inevitably, when you're um, creatively minded and absorbing information, your ideas come from many, many places all at the same time. So with regard to the portals, the idea of the design of the curved um, doorways came from three different aspects. 
Uh, one was some reading that I was doing. I was reading some material that Clarice Beckett had been reading, and it was written by Helena Blavatsky, who was a theosophist, and it was a book called The Voice of Silence. Now, according to Clarice's sister Hilda, this book was very influential to Clarice. So, of course, there I am, thumbing through this book, reading what Clarice was reading. And I'm going to quote you a uh, part from that book. In The Voice of Silence, Helena Blavatsky, who was sort of, again, an Eastern uh, mysticist, she wrote, Help nature and work on with her, and nature will regard thee as one of her creators and make obeisance, and she will open wide before thee the portals of her secret chambers. So in addition to reading this sort of information, you can imagine my mind is, is, is whirring. But also when you look at Clarice Beckett's paintings and the way she composes her paintings, you'll notice she often has this kind of screening effect in the foreground. So like wings, if you like, but wings that create almost a circle. So what you get is a keyhole kind of composition in her work. And when you look at her paintings, she's, she's taking us on a journey through her paintings. So there is this sense of walking and, and walking into a space and spatial recession. But further to that, it's not only a physical walking through into a space, but a transcendent ex, uh, experience. So walking from one dimension into the other, the physical into the spiritual. And I thought for visitors it would be great, therefore, to have these portals to underpin this idea. And then there has been much response, wonderful response to the soundscapes in the exhibition. Absolutely beautiful. And when you look at Clara Speckett's work, you know very well how still and silent and quiet the works are. And then if you imagine, as I, you do, I do, we all do, imagine being there with her. And we know once we start to listen in to nature sounds at the same time, we're really tuning into another realm. So I said at a meeting uh, at the gallery when I came out of my cocoon and into the gallery at the time, I said, wouldn't it be great? I'd love to have nature sounds in each room that related to that time of day. So bird song in the morning, for example, cicadas in the evening. That didn't quite happen, but that's okay. But again, with the soundscape, there are a, a, a various range of inspirations behind it. And I'm sure, like you, uh, I certainly listen to a lot of podcasts and I was listening to one podcast late at night and I was listening to it and this person on, in the podcast was talking about a, a man, a wonderful man called Krishnamurti. I don't know if many of you know of Krishnamurti who was a, a spiritualist and someone literally taken off the beach in India as a little boy and, and thought to have been the next messiah by the, the founders of the theosophical movement. Krishnamurti disengaged with the theosophical movement, but in the 1960s, he wrote a number of uh, notebooks. And this narrator on the podcast I was listening to at night, it said um, that 
the person was talking about Krishnamurti and how he would often wake at 4 a.m. in the morning. And I'm like, boom, so did Clarice. He's just like, Clarice is so much like him. And he would wake into a state of intense presence. The narrator then spoke about how Krishnamurti would perceive with intense alertness and notice the intense aliveness in all that surrounded him even in the insignificant manifestations. So I was very excited by that. And then further, the the person quoted from Krishnamurti's notebook. So if you don't mind, I'm just going to read a short extract because this reading this inspired the idea for the soundscapes that I had. This is Krishnamurti. He's describing a scene. Unfortunately, I'll just begin by saying it's a very quiet scene and we're in quite a bustling space, so bear with me. It was just before dawn when the sharp cry of a bird woke up the night for an instant and then the light of that cry faded away. All the trees remained dark, motionless, melting into the air. It was a soft, quiet night, endlessly alive. It was awake. There was a deep stirring with utter silence. It was a strange stillness, terribly potent, destructively alive. So alive, you were afraid to move. So this idea that a bird sound could inspire that response, uh, I just found completely galvanizing. So that's the idea behind the soundscapes. And of course, we, you will all be aware that the wonderful Simone Slattery um, came to the gallery, responded to our call for bird sounds and nature sounds, but she did much, much more in improvising and responding to the Clarice Beckett paintings and producing an exquisite uh, soundscape for us. She, she made it even better. Now, I've touched on the ideas the kitchen and the shed being sort of two touchstones in the exhibition. I felt it was very important, the idea of turning bad things into good things. And and again, going back to working on this project in the middle of, of COVID was really hard going. And I felt that I really did want this exhibition to be a beautiful experience for people who have had a really tough time. But... It's about turning the bad into the good. And, of course, you are all aware that Clarice Beckett had always hoped to have her own studio. She couldn't have it. It wasn't, um, you know, delivered to her by her father. And the way that he said the kitchen table will do, well, goody, great, because she turned that kitchen table into a space of great power. It was a creative space. And that's why uh, you'll see the table in the space that was made by our carpenter here. Um, I was talking to Rana this morning. We were looking back on the discussions that we had because Rana thought, oh, great, a table in the kitchen, good. And, and Tracy, what are you going to put on it? R- you know, sketchbooks? No. The table would have nothing on it and it would be illuminated. 
glowing as a power place, a spot where really creative, productive things happened. And I just wanted the simplicity of that statement to imbue the kitchen space, turn that female domestic space into a making positive space. I wanted it to radiate. And thank you, Rana, for letting me have that, have my head on that. And of course, the idea of the, the nature of the transparency. You'll see that I'm sitting in front of the window here and it creates this beautiful perforation into the kitchen and uh, creates this idea of the looking in, the looking out, but also the idea of... I just had in my mind's eye this sense of imagining Clara sat home in the family home at night, working away in the kitchen with the kitchen light on. So it's a slightly voyeuristic <laughs> take on the kitchen here, but it was also a way of opening up the space, giving a visual clue to visitors that there's something more behind here, and also creates a wonderful access point. There's a lot of access points throughout the exhibition. You know, the little porthole in the big space that was designed to open up that awkward big wall and create a direct access from one master beach scene to a master suburban scene. Um, and also give a cue to go around the back of the, the wall. So there's an axis here with Roz, who looks very much like a Madonna to me here on the screen, and um, seeing her from the kitchen through. So she's she sort of part of that kitchen space too. So many works have surfaced during the course of this exhibition. People have come forward to let us know uh, that they have a Clarice Beckett. So that's really, really exciting because we learn more and more and more. But there's also been this incredibly strange sense of serendipity about everything about this exhibition. Two days before I had to give a talk on Mother's Day, someone sent me an image of Clarice Beckett's, a painted image, a painting by Clarice Beckett of her mother. I had never seen it. It's never been seen by the public for 50 years. And so that was very, very exciting and um, very sort of pertinent to my Mother's Day talk. Uh, many of you will be aware of the, the, the butterfly catcher, that, that sort of story that we, we had. So that was exciting for that to surface. But this is more, this is different. It's been really interesting to look at the work and I'll talk a little bit about Clarice's relationship with her mother. Her relationship with her mother was very complex and there was never a loving bond between them until very late in Kate Beckett's life. Um, Clarice nursed her mother to her death. Her mother was suffering from a kidney um, problem that was very painful and very protracted. And um, so from late 1932, Clarice was very much restricted. Only from that time was she restricted in her painting hours. So that was when she was painting a lot, very early in the morning and in the evening, but only from late 1932 when she was nursing her mother. Kate Beckett was a very strong and refined woman and she lived as a, a life as the wife of a very respectable banker, Joseph Beckett. Now, what some of you may have not picked up on is that five years before Clarice was born, Kate, her mother, had given birth to her son, Thomas. 
Tragically, he was born microcephalic, and as Roz has recently revealed, his 17-year-long life uh, remained a family secret until Hilda's death in 1980. Hilda, Clarice's sister, told Roz Thomas died in infancy. Wrong. He lived for 17 years. And Clarice had, uh, had developed certainly a strong bond with her, her, her brother, and he spent a lot of his life in the lunatic asylum, as many of these, these people did at this time. And she wrote a beautiful poem about her brother when he died, and she kept that poem in, in her shoe for many years. So, Thomas was born, five years later, Clarice was born, and she was openly referred to by her mother as the replacement child. Clarice yearned to be closer to her mother. And then Hilda, her sister, born in 1891, five years later, was very outgoing and confident, and she soon became Kate's favourite. Clarice's father, Joseph, was a deeply well-meaning man, not that giving about having a studio, but he was a well-meaning man and a product of his own family and, of, and certainly of his era. And apparently, though, a street angel and house devil. Despite his obstructive behaviour towards his daughter's wish to be an artist, he cared for her dearly. They would pick apples together and attend church together. Clarice's ever-present shadow, however, was a continued yearning for her mother's approval and warm affection. Notably, notably, what struck me when I saw this image that's just surfaced of, of the mother is how distant it was. We have the two paintings in the exhibition of Clarice's sister, Hilda. Very open portraits, very engaging portraits. This image of the mother I found quite remote. Uh, and you can see that she, she looks away from the artist. But as of last night, I had another thought about the image. And it's very much like a reversal of Whistler's mother. Now, Clarice loved the work of Whistler. She was very aware of his work. And it may be a touch of that coming through too. So, again, a warning for myself not to read too much into uh, work and over-interpret the work. But, you know, it's kind of funny that there's two great portraits of Hilda and just this distant one of the mother. So to conclude, I would like to talk about the critical responses. I'm just going to go dangerously here and, and just gloat a little bit. <laughs> but they're so kind of fun. The, the responses, as you're well aware, have been overwhelming. And these are some of my favourites. There's um, Judith Pugh wrote for Al Almanac, and she said, whether you hitchhike or fly, sleep rough or stay in the poshest hotel, get to Adelaide to see the show. I love that one. And John McDonald's is wonderful. This exhibition is so phenomenal, I went back three days in a row. But my absolute favourite came from the, uh, the Finn Review. I have never heard of so many people going to Adelaide for the Clarice Beckett show. It's like the Venice Biennale. <laughs> so what, 
what's really on, on, I guess on a more serious note, I'm just not going to expand on it. I need to wrap up, but importantly, what we need to focus on is the information and the rigour that comes out of staging these exhibitions, the scholarship, the contribution. And I was really thrilled when Julie Ewington for the Australian Book Review picked up and actually read my essay and she came forward and, and made the comment that finally we now fully understand where Clarice Beckett fits in Australian art history. Clarice Beckett's always been regarded as kind of conservative, her works are real, realist. Uh, they're kind of, you know, done by a woman. Uh, they're, they're kind of modern. And anyway, if you read all the essays on Beckett, no one knows how to handle her. What I've come forward with saying is that the tripwire with understanding Clarice Beckett's work is the, is the realism. But what I've been able to articulate is that, in fact, her work, while realist, takes us into an abstract space. So she's actually incredibly modernist and she's engaging with all the international trends that are occurring around the world exactly the same as Georgia O'Keeffe or Hilma F. Clint and so forth and so on. She's doing the same thing and she's so, and for that, very, very important. So it's been a thrill to be able to get it out there and get that comprehended, that point, because Australian modern, modernism and uh, scholarship in Australian modern art is very messy at times. So that's great. Um, and I guess that, I'm just scanning my notes, and perhaps on that great point, uh, I'll, I'll finish my talk, and um, yeah, I reckon Adelaide's the new Venice. Yeah, <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs>